So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. Today, I am really excited to be joined by Delton Chen, who is an Australian civil engineer and whose career is focused on the development of models of groundwater flow, surface water interactions, mining projects, and environmental impacts. And his current passion is the development of an award-winning international policy called Global 4C Risk Mitigation, which aims to strongly mitigate climate change. So welcome to the show, Delton. Hi, Liv. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So I should say that um, I found you, well, actually, my research assistant found you because I had been reading um, this wonderful book called um, The Ministry for the Future, which is our, our book for our A-Correction book club. And in it, um, they talk about a, a, a carbon coin, which is a form of cryptocurrency, which we're going to get into today, which is designed to incentivize keeping carbon in the ground. And I, I said to her, if you, you know, find out who's responsible for this idea. And she she gave me your email. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited. So let's get, right, right. Let's, get, <laughs> let's get right to it. What is Global C4 Risk Mitigation? Okay. Well, Global 4C is the technical name for this new climate policy which quite correctly, it's based on a currency. And I'm just going to put out there for everybody a new name for the policy and the currency to make it easier for everybody. So we're now calling it the global carbon reward and the currency, we're now just calling it the carbon currency and that'll make life easier. And so the carbon currency um, in Stan's novel, he calls it carbon coin and uh, he, he gives a, a kind of interpretation of, of the policy that marries with his storyline. And um, I can tell you about the actual policy if you like. I, I would like that, yeah. Okay, so a uh, quick rundown. Uh, what is the global carbon reward? Well, if we've all heard of carbon taxes, cap and trade, subsidies. Uh, this is all in the textbooks. And so the analysis I did uh, on market pricing is that I reanalyzed the available policies using monetary theory, and I developed a kind of a matrix, uh, a kind of social and physical analysis, which points to a fourth policy type, which we call the global carbon reward. And it's different to the other market policies for a few reasons. One is we uh, reward the mitigators with a carbon currency and the carbon currency is funded with monetary policy. So in this approach, we don't actually create any direct costs for citizens, businesses, or governments, because all the costs are channeled into monetary inflation, which would be relatively benign. And with this approach, the idea is to overcome political conflict and private conflicts over cost sharing. And by offering a reward to mitigate, the assumption is, or the presumption is, that this will really enhance cooperation amongst everybody in the world because people like carrots in mm -hmm. carrots and sticks. So I, there's a, I have so many questions. The first is, in order to make this coin work, it, it would have to be funded then by real existing central banks. Is that right? Correct. Uh, in fact, in the ideal case, we'd have all the world's central banks trading this currency, buying it uh, through a kind of version of quantitative easing, which we've got a name for, call it carbon quantitative easing. But um, just to answer that question, yeah, 
the more central banks, the better in this policy. And it would work if we had, say, the G20 on board plus other banks. You know, I sort of understand the concept of, of helicopter money. Is this along those lines? Not really. So helicopter money is a term that was put forward to explain the notion of central bank uh, expanding the money supply, printing new money, and kind of giving it away. And uh, generally, central banks don't like to do that uh, for reasons which to do with their accounting. So if they're going to expand money and use it uh, to buy things, such as government bonds in their quantitative quantitative easing programs, uh, they do need to show on their books their assets and liabilities. So they expand the money supply, they buy bonds, uh, corporate bonds and other things, other currencies. And in this case, they're going to buy the carbon currency and that way they have something of value to, sh- to explain where the new money went. Uh, so that's an accounting interpretation. But the, the, the carbon quantitative easing that we're discussing, uh, it is similar to quantitative easing that we see in the news, except that one major difference is that that the money is going to go into the productive sectors of the economy directly to mitigate climate change, whereas currently central banks don't have that option. Um, It's not in their mandates and uh, they don't have the theory or the policies to do something like what we're proposing. So I'm sorry if if I'm asking really basic questions, but can you explain to the audience what exactly quantitative easing is and how it would work in this case? I mean, I want to be as specific as where does the central bank get the money to do quantitative easing today? And then if we imagine them buying up these coins, who would issue the coins in the first place and where would they be sending that money? They're all good questions. I'd like to just start by pointing out that the money we use, that's the money that's official and the government issues, call it fiat currency, national fiat currencies. Uh, Every country in the world is using fiat, which is uh, money created from nothing, literally. So it's a legally declared form of money. It's not backed by commodities like a gold standard. So um, we need to recognize that all the money is created from nothing. Most of it's created by commercial banks when they lend. They also destroy the money when people pay back their loans. So it's not unusual to create this money for nothing because that's how it's all created. But in the case of central banks, the only difference is they create it from nothing uh, without lending it. And the money that they're creating, called bank reserves, it stays within the pool of money between central bank and commercial banks. So it's not money going directly into the economy, but it can go indirectly into the economy uh, by buying assets. So this policy that we're talking about, the global carbon reward that's discussed in in Stan's novel, um, it would require, I think, a new institution. Like we'd introduce a new global institution that would do all of the administrative work of assessing projects, working out how much carbon they've mitigated, offering them a reward, giving them a contract and issuing the new digital currency. So they would create it for nothing, the carbon currency, but they would have, uh, for every carbon currency unit that's given, there would be 
contract stipulating that that carbon is actually being mitigated over the long term. These are service level agreements. So the institution would have a pretty firm hold over the, the carbon that's being um, mitigated and it's rewarded with our carbon currency. So then the central bank comes in, in this uh, policy to ensure that our carbon currency achieves the value that we need to be a good incentive. So we, we want a carbon currency that rises in value uh, getting up to around 50, 100, 150 US dollars equivalent per unit of carbon currency, which represents one ton of CO2 equivalent. So the way to do it is like quantitative easing, except um, they're going to buy this currency instead of gov government bonds. Is that kind of clear or is there something about this that I, I should elaborate on? So you have a new institution, let's call it the Ministry for the Future, and mm -hmm. they're responsible for figuring out who, and, and the who could be a country like Saudi Arabia, or the who could be uh, an industry. Who is responsible for taking the carbon out of the ground? And then therefore, who would be responsible for keeping the carbon in the ground and rewarding them for keeping in the ground? Am I, am I right so far? Kind of. Um, I'll just maybe clarify this point that it is a market policy and a monetary policy. So in the market approach, we'd offer the reward to any enterprise that um, is capable of mitigating. I wouldn't think we'd offer it to a country per se, but we'd offer it to businesses, corporations, uh, entrepreneurs, farms and mining companies or whoever is going to do the mitigation work. And they would apply for the reward you know, online and they would have to submit applications and they would be instructed about what data to provide and they'd have to sign a, a service level agreement. So this would look a bit like hiring a plumber. So you, a plumber comes to your house, you have a contract, they're gonna fix your, your, your plumbing, they go away, a week later it leaks again, and so you gotta call them back. And in your service agreement, they have to fix it uh, because they didn't fix it properly the first time. So all of the um, market participants who are mitigating, they're gonna be signing onto these service level agreements, which will stipulate in considerable detail all the data requirements, the monitoring, um, what happens if they, their carbon leaks out. And these agreements will be tailored for every kind of technology. Because, you know, you probably have heard um, that there are many different strategies and methods that might be used to reduce emissions and to take carbon out of the atmosphere. I guess the only problem that I can imagine is that there would be a great incentive to, to cheat, right? You'd need a lot of regulation, no? Yeah, th this is true from the point of view that from an administrative perspective, it's much, much harder to manage a reward than it is a tax. So taxes, one of the appeal of taxes, especially for economists, is the idea that it's a low information experience because you can kind of measure quite easily the amount of emissions uh, and you can hit, hit the polluter with the tax under polluter pace principle. But you, when you start talking about mitigation, you really flip the coin in that everything about a mitigation actually is very, generally is data intensive. Uh, a lot of monitoring, 
and verification is needed. So it is a more expensive transaction, higher transaction costs. And um, for that reason, I think a lot of economists would be concerned or even not supporting such a concept. However, uh, my own interpretation is that we would have to invest some money in this relatively expensive administration because if we don't do it, I don't think we'll be able to manage the risks, the systemic risks of climate change. And I see this um, information need, the high administrative cost, is being inherently uh, natural to this problem of mitigation. Because mitigation as a physical process is data intensive. So it's sort of, it's part of the course, if you like. It's something that um, we're just going to have to embrace, in my opinion, as being like a new type of economy, a new market that requires this administration and policing, like he said, to stop the, the bad actors. Right. And, and actually, that could be a positive thing. In a serious way, it could be a jobs program. It will employ a lot of people because if you can imagine, there's the people doing work on the ground, the scientists collect the data, interpret it, the financial people to run the administration and IT and everything. So uh, I think that this approach will have co-benefits in creating employment and encouraging people to implement not just climate mitigation strategies, but regenerative strategies. So focusing on things like soil carbon, potentially uh, rock dust, biochar, reforestation, avoided deforestation, rewilding, um, organic farming, and so on. And then you've got your industrial methods like direct air capture, uh, different kinds of cement, and so on and so forth. All right, so now this, this is the tricky part for me. And again, this is gonna just highlight how maybe slow I am here, but the Ministry for the Future has these coins, they give them to people who are mitigating carbon. The way that they get these coins is because the central bank has given them, actually all the central banks in the world, hopefully, have given them to this ministry to distribute. Is that right? The Ministry in the Future in, in, in the policy, it, it would originate the coins. And then the central banks just buy them in the open market to bump up their value, if that makes sense. They just become another actor in the market who buy it in exchange for the national fear currencies. And that way it underpins or underwrites its exchange rate. I see. But why do you need the central banks to do that? Why couldn't the market just set the price itself without the interference, the quantitative easing. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, this is interesting because uh, that's really the whole secret of central banking. It's to um, influence the sentiment of the marketplace. So when the central banks in this policy and also in, in uh, quantitative easing, we see with the COVID-19 and 2008 financial crisis, the role of the central bank is to instill confidence. So they promise to uh, keep interest rates low and they, they say they're going to buy all of these assets, which they do. And uh, this gives people confidence in the economy. So with the carbon coin or carbon currency, uh, as I call it, is a similar dynamic. 
when the central bank promises to buy it uh, to raise the exchange rate, and when they promise to keep increasing the exchange rate year on year, compound, uh, people will, will buy the coin because it becomes an attractive investment. So it becomes a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy, if you like. I see. So the central bank, in your vision, would provide a sort of a floor that gets raised, a price floor that gets raised every year. Mm, correct. Yeah. Okay. And then it would also be exchanged on, on Forex markets, like on foreign exchange markets? Yes. This is a policy, actually. The idea is to register it as a currency under international standards. That way, all the financial institutions and banks can trade it more conveniently on the foreign exchange, like with US dollars, euros, yen, etc. cetera. Uh, and it'll be more clear to everybody what the exchange rate is, and that is by definition our reward price. So the interesting thing about the policy is that the actual financial reward per ton of mitigation is the exchange rate. Uh, and so it makes it very clear for everybody. Does that answer the question? Maybe it totally, it, it's very clear. So that, but I have more questions. Um, but thank, and thank you for being so clear. If I were an investor on the foreign exchange market and I saw that there was this carbon currency and there was a floor and it was going to be raised every year and it was backed by central banks, it's hard to imagine a more attractive currency than that. This has quite deep theoretical implications, actually. So I'll just clarify something. Um, when the targeted exchange rate is set for this reward, uh, it's not set arbitrarily. Like we don't just make up an exchange rate. It'll actually be the exchange rate that we estimate will get us to the Paris Agreement. So if you could think it's an assessment for an objective, we'll end up with some kind of exchange rate curve into the future for 100 years. And that curve will have a slope. So for the economists out there and the mathematicians, if you can visualize this curve of rising, the time derivative is the yield on, on the currency. And that time derivative is the um, attractive asset appreciation for our investors. So when the investors of the currency see the yield, they'll say, wow, the yield is like 10% or whatever, I'll buy it. Now, <clears throat> theoretically speaking, I believe that this yield resolves the problem of time discounting in uh, standard economics because that yield, like you said, being a low risk investment, it modifies what's called the risk-free rate of return in the financial system. So once we modify the risk-free rate of return in the financial system with uh, the yield of this currency, we're influencing everybody's investment and consumption decisions. And it's this influence on investment and consumption that uh, will help to mitigate climate change. Now, I could imagine that someone would respond by saying, well, this will really distort the market because people will flood to this, this coin or this currency. But I could also imagine that that's your responsibility. Well, that's great. We would stop speculating in really dangerous stuff and start speculating in something that'll save the planet, in, in rewarding behavior that will save the planet. And that's exactly what we want to encourage. But have you heard any pushback? Like, well, if we do this, this is going to be such a strong currency that 
we are going money, which would flow to productive purposes will flow here instead. Yeah. I, I don't think it's going to be a problem like that because it's constrained. So uh, the supply of the currency is not infinite. There's only enough currency to match the amount of carbon that's mitigated. And so um, because it's a limited supply, uh, everybody can't buy it. There, there will be a limit on what's available and people simply won't keep buying it because the price will be rising too high. So it's kind of self-regulating. But um, in reference to the World Bank, uh, they put a report out you know, years ago about we've got to avoid four degrees Celsius of global warming. And the World Bank recognised we're not putting enough private uh, finance and capital into mitigation. So the interesting thing about this approach is that when uh, institutions and private investors buy the currency, what are they doing? They're putting their private wealth into a currency which is used to fund mitigation directly. So we get this channel from the private sector directly into mitigation. Uh, and then if that's not enough, we've got the central banks to back it with um, quantitative easing, or I call it carbon quantitative easing. Well, Delton, the one thing I'm thinking is because there's a limited supply and the price will keep going up, it does mm-hmm. feel in that way like like a, like Bitcoin, where the price keeps going up and because the price goes up, people invest in it. And so I could imagine lots of investors investing in this thing and not being scared away by the high price, but the high price would actually be attracting them. But in that way, it, it would be like, the opposite of a Bitcoin because a Bitcoin is terrible for the environment and people are speculating on it, but this would be great for the environment, but there, there could still be some speculation. No, I think you're right. Uh, I don't know what would happen to be honest. Would it attract too many buyers? I guess with our experience with Bitcoin, uh, we can see the power of a bull market. Bitcoin's in a secular bull market. It is a speculative one. I kind of look at it a bit like the tulip bubble. With the carbon coin, one advantage is that the central bank can sell back uh, currency if it has some to to dampen the price if it's rising too quickly. But from an environmental perspective, it doesn't actually um, do a bad thing. If the price goes particularly high, it just means mitigating becomes more profitable. And... There is another benefit of having this flexibility in price, and that is we can set the exchange rate for the carbon currency to stay under two degrees. But uh, that's not necessarily the best outcome for the world. There may be a lot of people who think one and a half or one degree is a better target. And so it does give society a bit more flexibility to, say, push the price up higher uh, in a kind of a social movement to try and get under one and a half degrees. So I think it does offer a kind of a decentralized governance where markets can target more stringent mitigation. Um, But then again, you might be right. It could be uh, a profit-driven speculation as well. So that's something yet to be um, seen. I don't. But I I have to say, I'm not saying that's a bad thing also. I mean, if it pushes up the reward for mitigating carbon, that's not the worst thing in the world. I wonder what the the barriers are. What do the central banks lose by by backing this coin? Uh, the first thing that they'd have to give up, more so than lose, 
is a bit of sovereignty over their monetary policy. However, they don't really get a choice from the point of view that um, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume that central banks operate to the mandates that their governments give them. So if a new mandate is to be issued to central banks to buy the carbon currency to support this approach, it will require possibly new legislation from their regulators. Now, if that came, uh, that those extra mandates, or maybe they reinterpret their existing mandates, but if they are given permission and that was part of their remit, um, I think in practice, it won't interfere too much with their regular operations because they will just be instructed to create some currency and buy another currency. So it's not a lot of work on their behalf in terms of daily operations. They just got to maybe press a few buttons on a computer or maybe be automated and, and that's it because they're not really going to be involved in doing all the, the uh, scientific work, the technical work, because that's outside of their um, skill set. You know, I know that Ministry for the Future has gotten a lot of media attention. Ezra Klein had Kim Stanley Robinson on. It was reviewed in New York Review of Books by Bill McKibben. Um, I'm wondering whether or not anyone from, you know, John Kerry's office has gotten in touch with you or Biden's team or any other world leaders to talk about, you know, how we implement this. Well, you know, I hope that um, I would have had some discussions about that, but uh, our policy has been off the radar, even though there is a few publications. The thing is, some of the ideas in this policy are unconventional. Actually, they are categorically they're unconventional. And I think that the, the practicing economists and policymakers um, don't really explore ideas around new monetary systems, about new currencies, because it, traditionally they just develop policies using the, the official fiat currencies. So there's that kind of cultural barrier um, and there is also the fact that, as I said before, the central bank's mandates don't give them the leeway to directly fund climate mitigation. And in fact, this is being discussed at length by the central bankers in an association called the NGFS, the Network for Greening the Financial System, based in Paris. And I'm not involved in those meetings because I'm not a central banker. So um, they've said publicly that their uh, role in this climate crisis is just to look at financial systemic risk. And so the carbon currency, the carbon coin, and this global carbon reward, these are really a, a kind of a paradigm shift in two ways. There are two paradigm shifts. One is um, central banks would have to be given expanded mandates and they'd have to step out of their comfort zone into directly funding uh, mitigation in the real economy. That's a big step. And then we have the other paradigm, which is the theory around carbon pricing. So we've got Arthur Bagu's theory on um, taxes and subsidies. We've got Coase's theorem on trading, um, say, carbon, off, uh, carbon credits in a cap and trade scheme. And, and, but this new policy, the global carbon reward, it doesn't have uh, any mention in textbooks. So it's a blank page. And this is why the um, 
economists, including leading economists, have never discussed it because the theory actually doesn't exist, or at least not in the textbooks. Thank you.